0: Hello. You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church located on Mountain Avenue in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the executive pastor. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Please rate and review if you enjoy May the Spirit have some word for you in what we have to share. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the New Testament Gospel of Matthew and may be found on page 794 of your Pew Bible if you would like to follow along. Reading from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 33, hear these words for the church today. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Along with please and thank you, saying sorry is probably one of the earliest phrases many of us learned as children. It's an important nicety parents want to teach their kids. One child yanks another toys out of her hands, and a parent scolds the child who took the toy and asks, What do you say to her? That's right. Sorry. What do you say? Sorry. It's a call and response common in many households. I can still hear my own little brother's empty, almost sarcastic, Sorry for taking the front seat when it was my turn or taking the last nutter butter when I was saving it for my lunchbox. In a leadership class years ago, friends once shared with me that they think I say, I'm sorry, way too much. Young girls, particularly girls raised in the South, are taught to be nice, polite, and compliant. So, I'm sorry, often slips out when we really have nothing to apologize for. I think it's an issue many women have. I'm working on it. But sometimes our sorries come out as polite reflexes. We throw the word around and ask our children to offer it constantly without really pausing to reflect on what it means and what we're apologizing for. When do we truly understand the significance of apologies? When do we begin to understand giving and receiving? Forgiveness. Peter wonders about it. He asks Jesus, How often should I forgive? Peter wants a simple answer. I mean, who doesn't want a good formula? How many times should I forgive? Seven times? Seven times sounds generous. Peter must think of this as a big number. It would be easy if we only had to forgive someone once. But seven? Seven? Jesus responds, not seven, but seventy-seven, or as some translations read, seventy times seven. This forgiveness is beyond quantifying. It's not a one-time or even a seven-times thing. True to Jesus' style, he follows Peter's question with a story. It's a parable about hypocrisy and not being who you ought to be, who you are made to be. It's a parable about forgiveness and why it's so difficult. A king undertakes a review of the account books of all his enslaved servants. But the focus is on one servant in particular, a highly placed administrator who's managed to accumulate a financial obligation of staggering size. His debt of 10,000 talents combines the largest monetary unit of the time and the largest numerical value in the ancient Roman world. We might think of this more like hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of dollars today. The servant, of course, is unable to pay what he owes, and he's facing imprisonment, and even the forced sale of his family and his possessions. He pleads for more time. The master stuns the servant, and us, when we read it, by canceling this ginormous debt. Extravagant compassion, not harsh judgment prevails. Immediately after his unexpected escape from catastrophe, the forgiven servant accosts a fellow servant who owes him a modest debt, 100 denarii, the equivalent of something like four or five months wage for a laborer. Despite the debtor's plea for more time, using the same line that worked for the first servant moments ago, the creditor servant refuses even this request and has the man imprisoned. This withholding of mercy distresses the other servants and they file a complaint with the king. And the king's compassion gives way to rage. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? He asks. This is a difficult parable. The narrative swings back and forth between extreme mercy and severe judgment. Underneath it all, though, is a simple reality. Forgiveness is not easy. We know this to be true. Sometimes what others have done to us, our people we love, is so hurtful that we don't want to forgive them. Sometimes people are so dependent on their own guilt or shame that they don't want to be forgiven. It's tricky, and it's hard. But forgiveness is one of the things that the church does well, that Christians do or ought to do, that very few other sectors in our society talk about. There's something counterintuitive about forgiveness. And before we dive into deeper about what forgiveness is, I want to address what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not denial. Forgiveness doesn't mean pretending that what has happened doesn't matter or that a wound doesn't hurt. Forgiveness is an acting as though nothing needs to change or assuming that God is so generous that God isn't grieved and angered by injustice. For God is. The start of forgiveness is the acknowledgement of wrongdoing, of harm, of a real violation. Sin wounds. Whenever we talk about the need for forgiveness, as Debbie Thomas puts it, we must begin by recognizing and naming the extent of brokenness. At the same time, we must recognize that we were created for more than this. We were created for good, for love, equality, tenderness, and wholeness. As image-bearers of God, we were made for a just and nurturing world that honors our dignity. When we experience anything other than that basic goodness, it is appropriate to react with horror. There are not a lot of places where we hear about the power of forgiveness. Sometimes a good novel or a good film can open up the theme, but forgiveness is one of the things that people of faith are called to do, and we strive to do it well. In our faith, we learn that forgiveness can set us free from the things that haunt us. It can build communities that more than just function, but thrive. Forgiveness is what God has done for us and what we are called to do for others. And I wonder, what examples of forgiveness have you experienced or witnessed in your own lives? Consider these historical examples of incredible forgiveness. The Mother Emmanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The incredible grace and forgiveness offered by the families of victims. The response of French Huguenots in World War II when interviewed and asked why they protected Jews in Nazi Europe, they didn't understand the question because they had practiced forgiveness and hospitality so much that it was a way of life, and they could think to do nothing else. Many of us remember a number of years ago, the Amish school shooting in Pennsylvania, and the incredible grace that community had to forgive. In all these stories, there's some sense that forgiveness has been a particular community's practice, that they didn't have to even think about it. They were prepared. For them, forgiveness was a way of life. 20 years after the Rwandan genocide, photographer Pieter Hugo traveled to the country and captured stories of unlikely, almost unthinkable tableaus. A portion of this project is shared in a New York Times Magazine article. And in one image, a woman rests her hand on the shoulder of the man who killed her father and brothers. In another, a woman poses with a casually reclining man who looted her property and whose father helped murder her husband and children. In many of these photos, there is little evident warmth between the pairs, and yet they are together. In each image, the perpetrator is Hutu, who was granted pardon by the Tutsi survivor of his crime. The people who agreed to be photographed for this series are part of a continuing national effort toward reconciliation, and they work closely with a nonprofit organization called AMI. In this program, small groups of Hutus and Tutsis are counseled over many months, culminating in the perpetrator's formal request for forgiveness. If forgiveness is granted by the survivor, the perpetrator and his family and friends typically bring a basket of offerings, usually food and sorghum or banana beer. The accord is sealed with song and dance. The pairs photographed in Hugo's portraits were interviewed and shared their experience of the freeing power of forgiveness. One perpetrator said, I burned her house. I attacked her in order to kill her and her children, but God protected them and they escaped. When I was released from jail, if I saw her, I would run and hide. Then I started the trainings. I decided to ask her for forgiveness. His survivor replied, I used to hate him. When he came to my house and knelt down before me and asked for forgiveness, I was moved by his sincerity. Now, if I cry for help, He comes to rescue me. When I face any issue, I call him. Another perpetrator said, My conscience was not quiet. And when I would see her, I was very ashamed. After being trained about unity and reconciliation, I went to her house and asked for forgiveness. Then I shook her hand. And so far, we're on good terms. His survivor replied, He killed my father and three brothers. He did these killings with other people, but he came alone to me and asked for my pardon. And a group of other offenders who had been in prison helped me build a house with a covered roof. I was afraid of him. Now I have granted him pardon. Things have become normal, and in my mind I feel clear. Another survivor said, I have started to feel better. I was like a dry stick. Now I feel peaceful in my heart and I share this peace with my neighbors. Incredible images and stories of forgiveness. Now to be completely honest, I don't know if I would be able to forgive like this. I've never been so utterly wronged or devastated like these survivors have been. I don't know, but I do know That I am in awe and grateful beyond measure to see that forgiveness like this is possible. I hope that I could come to such a point of peace. Matthew tells us that in some way, Jesus' parable, sometimes called the parable of the unforgiving servant, shows us the reign of God. In God's kingdom, forgiveness like this is possible. So much of what we see modeled in the world around us is revenge, spite, and vindictiveness. Yet, Anne Lamont writes that withholding forgiveness is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Nora Gallagher writes, forgiveness is a way to unburden oneself from the constant pressure of rewriting the past. And Henry Nouwen writes, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth, he says, is that all people love poorly. And so we need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour increasingly. Forgiveness is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak, that is the human family. If these writers are correct, then forgiveness means choosing love instead of resentment, if I'm consumed with my own pain, if I've made injury my identity, if I insist on weaponizing my well-deserved anger in every interaction I have with people who hurt me, then I'm drinking the poison, and the poison will kill me long before it does anything to my abusers. To choose forgiveness is to release myself from the bitterness, the tyranny of my bitterness. And so I have to ask myself, we ought to ask ourselves, where is it that we're holding on to something so tight that we need to let go of? How do we model forgiveness as individuals, as a community of faith? Forgiveness is a transformed way of seeing. It's a way of seeing that is forward-focused, kingdom-focused. With God, there is always another turn another chapter, another path, another grace. Because God loves us, we don't have to forgive out of scarcity. We can forgive out of God's abundance. How often should I forgive? 70 times 7. Forgiveness is hard. It doesn't come cheap, and it doesn't ignore injustice. But it does come from God. It is a gift we receive. We acknowledge it and worship every Sunday. And we proclaim it in the good news of Jesus Christ. May we Christians take up the hard work of forgiveness for the sake of a broken and desperate world. Second Presbyterian Finding Direction by Following Jesus